Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamihira. First of all, Happy New Year. I'm personally just grateful to have made it through 2023. So here we go. <laughs> Again, I have very mixed emotions as this episode is being prepped for release because of world events that move faster and more dramatically than this little pod. I met my guest Shava Whale through my work on the International Curse of Control Conference, and I had invited her on the show to talk about her groundbreaking work on femicide around the world. Shava is an Israeli anthropologist who has pioneered femicide observatories in her home country and elsewhere, and has written and edited many books and articles on the subject of femicide. Between when we set the date and when we sat down for the interview, the October 7 Hamas attacks happened in Israel, and we were a few weeks into Israel's mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere. So, of course, these events completely changed how we approached this conversation. And while I feel very fortunate to be able to have these overwhelming conversations, I often feel like I've bit off more than I can chew. At any rate, what I'd like to say ahead of you listening to this interview is even though femicide, women getting murdered because they are women, has been a fact of life for millennia around the globe, but only starting in 1973 have we had a name for it. And Shalva helped put it in our collective consciousness. So please enjoy my talk with her. You were starting to say that had I asked these questions, had this conversation taken place a couple of months ago, yeah. we would have had a different conversation. But now you're now right. you're in we a vastly different world. We would have had a very different yeah. conversation. I um, Shalva was born in England, as you can probably hear from my accent, and came to live in Israel out of volition about 50 years ago. I obviously joined the feminist ranks in, in Britain, but I was also leading feminist movements in Europe. And at the moment, Israel is in the middle of this very problematic and horrific war with the Hamas. Now, my intention is not to discuss the Palestine-Israel conflict, but to suggest that the rape and murder of women in Israel by Hamas on the 7th of October, I'm excluding what's happened since, but on the 7th of October, where about 300 women were murdered, was femicide. I'll just mention some of the horrors here, but I, I don't want to dwell on horrors, but I'll just mention one or two, like women saw their babies being beheaded in front of them, and then they were shot. Women were raped and then murdered. And there was the most horrific story of a woman who was pregnant and her fetus was taken out of her. Oh, absolutely horrific things, barbaric. So probably about 300 women raped very badly. And as you know, women were taken into captivity. And there are still about 20 women, I don't know exact number, but there are about 20 women who are in Hamas hands at the moment. 
And everybody's very, very worried what's happened to them and what's happening to them on a day-to-day basis and whether they're still alive, in fact. But they certainly, these atrocities took place in Israel on the 7th of October. There's no doubt about it. Now, I think I was the first person in Israel who mentioned these atrocities. It took the feminist organizations in Israel a long time to understand what I understood in the first week. And that was that these were human rights aberrations. Mm-hmm. And I asked to call those atrocities femicide. I wasn't aware of the great extent of the atrocities, but I certainly knew that they had taken place. I wrote an op-ed on purpose in English so that foreigners could read it in what's called the Jerusalem Post, and it was read widely. And I sent it out to 300 NGOs, including many feminist organizations in Europe and in the world, and in America, and in the UN, and in the European Union, and all the organizations with whom I had been associated in the past. And I asked them to write a condemnation on their website condemning this act of violence. And out of 300 NGOs, I did get very nice letters from people asking how I was, and they were really nice, and they asked if I'm safe and if I'm okay, and they hope for peace. But guess how many condemnations I got on all these feminist organizations and others? Zero. So it feels like a betrayal of the feminist ideals. How come this has happened? Two months has gone past, and now... Israelis are aware and other people in the world are aware of the atrocities. And two or three days ago, there was a meeting at the UN Women at which many top people appeared and said things like, me too, unless you're Jewish, or me too, unless you're Israeli. But it is true that there's been no clear condemnation of these atrocities by any feminist organization. Now, the brunt of the anger was against the UN women, but I want to point out that I had a very good relationship personally with the UN women. They asked me to set up a femicide observatory, which is one of the things that the UN wants to monitor the rates of femicide in different countries. They asked me to set it up in Macedonia. They invited me, and they knew I was Israeli. They invited me from Israel. In addition, they paid for me to appear in the UN in New York about five years ago, where I spoke about femicide at the UN. So they were definitely behind me, with me, and with other feminist organizations. Now, until two days ago, UN women didn't even write a condemnation. They didn't write anything about their atrocities. They just wrote how they are shocked about the situation in Gaza. And people turned to them and they wrote petitions and they just ignored it. Because things built up, they finally, two days ago, put on their website a very, in my opinion, pathetic condemnation of the atrocities. It began off, we're very worried about the ceasefire finishing in Gaza. And then the second paragraph was, of course, we should... Now, just listen to this. We should condemn the atrocities in Israel, 
but we have to investigate the cases of rape. In no other country where there have been so much such mass murder and such mass rape, even Rwanda, which was featured in one of my books called Femicide in War and Peace, did they ask to investigate each case. Now, it is a problem because most of the women were first raped and then murdered. But there were people who came in, like policemen and ambulances, and they, they gave testimony. So there's ample evidence, ample evidence. But what's happened to UN women? What's happened to our sister organizations, feminist organizations? Isn't femicide a human rights aberration anymore? I don't understand it. Yeah, it is such a crucial question. So what do you think is happening here? Very strange. I mean, I'm not going to interpret why they are taking this stance and why they're not condemning what we all put our years and years of work into. But why do you think? Well, you know, in the Israeli newspapers and newspapers all over the world, they have their theories about you know, me too, unless I'm Jewish, it's, you know, an old anti-Semitic thing. I personally, because I have so many colleagues who are not Jewish and I've worked hand in hand with people, I'm not quick off the mark to call people anti-Semites. On the other hand, I really don't have an explanation for this because it's such a clear-cut case. And if it had happened in any other country, it would have been condemned. It's, it's, it's horrible. I don't get it. Yeah, and I'd like to talk more about it, but I think that it's getting lost in the duality of men's war or in the in the war condition itself. And don't we see this? I mean, I feel like that's a thread that went through your whole book, Femicide in War and Peace, in that femicide was a footnote to whatever national or state conflict or even internal conflict in civil war that the that's very very true and you saw that a lot in the book however and that's true of governments which are in general run by men in the israeli parliament there are hardly any women at all we've gone backwards since the days of golda meir but i mean we've really gone backwards we've got just a few women who are quite ghastly but it wasn't true in the past of feminist organizations. In other words, the feminist organizations were asking for justice, for judicial distribution, etc. And in this case, suddenly, the feminist organizations are silent. I think we are seeing a co-optation of feminism into taking sides in patriarchal it's extremely what you're saying. What you're saying is that some of the feminist leaders of today actually, in my terms, regressing to where we were in the, before the 1970s, in fact, uh, over 50 years ago, and uh, in cahoots with these male, even misogynists, in fact, governments and organizations. But it still strikes me as very strange because these feminists have worked for 50 years and they achieved quite a lot. And That's now right. what's happened? I mean, you see it 
in quite a few areas. You see it in sexual exploitation around the world, where there's now a very, very strong sex work is work lobby that argues with liberal feminists sort of leading the charge, argues for sexual exploitation. But I think it's a larger co-optation issue. But back to what you started with, I, I read a, an article in The Guardian, sorry, I don't remember the author now, but let's not lose sight of the fact that rape is rape and that, that it's indefensible what happened in Israel, regardless of the political situation. It's just indefensible. I think it's indefensible. And, and I think that even if we have relative values there are some things that we have to come out on that are absolute. And raping women and then murdering them is a no-no. It's a human rights violation. And I, I, I just can't understand how anybody could condone it or ignore it. The ignoring is, in a sense, condoning. Israeli feminists from feminist organizations, they feel totally betrayed. They can't understand it at all. I can imagine. I can imagine that. In the UN Women meeting, there was a speech by an Israeli woman who was Miss Universe. She's called Miss Abba Jill. It was a few years back. And after she won the title of being Miss Universe, very beautiful, she was raped violently in Italy. I remember the, the case. It was in Milano. And she was adopted and hugged by all the feminist organizations. She said that, yeah, that in the UN just, just now. And they all took her as a symbol and she appeared at all their conferences and she's beautiful and they loved her and they supported her and they were absolutely outraged about the fact that she was violently raped after she received this title. And she says that today she's disgusted she, as an Israeli woman, she says that she feels just outraged and sickened by the feminist organizations today. So I want to dig into femicide as a concept, as a history. You talk at length in your article, Making Femicide Visible, about why studying femicide, defining femicide making it a legitimate sociological pursuit, or a pursuit at all, a research pursuit at all, is so difficult. And your personal work as well. Like, how did you get into femicide research? So I'll say how I got in first chronologically, and then I'll, I'll certainly relate to that article I wrote called Making Femicide Visible, which appeared in 2016 in Current Sociology. So I'm actually an anthropologist and have uh, two major areas of specialization. One, you'll be surprised, nothing to do with femicide. One is Indian Jews, and I'm an expert on India and the Jews in India, the different communities like Cochin Jews and Venezuela and Maharashtra and Baghdadi Jews. And I've written a lot and books and published a lot on them. And in addition, and not connected, I'm also was the president of the Society for the Study of Ethiopian Jewry. They are very fascinating from Ethiopia. And I've written a lot about them. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2008, I was approached by what's called the Ministry of Absorption here to do a small study of, we didn't have the word then, femicide, 
amongst Ethiopian women in Israel. Now I'll explain. The Ethiopian Jews started coming to Israel largely in two major waves in 1984 to 5 and then 1991. And in the 1990s, they must have constituted 0.5% of the total population in Israel. By the time we got to 2008, one third of all the femicide cases, which we didn't call femicide in those days, were of Ethiopian origin. So something was wrong. A third of all the cases were Ethiopian, and yet they were such a small minority in Israeli society. So I was asked, I was commissioned to do a study of these women. Now, because I had been doing fieldwork amongst Ethiopian Jews for many years and very well accepted by them, which was actually was unusual, I had many, many contacts in the community. And I came up with a small report for this ministry saying, look, there are more cases than you thought about. I found another four cases of women who were murdered from this community. This is outrageous. And I wrote this report and the Ministry of Absorption in Israel was shocked. And they said, we have to censor your report. Now they had commissioned it through the Hebrew University. They paid for it, it was a paid commission. And I was advised by the legal advisor of the university not to publish the findings because they had censored it. And anyway, to cut a long story short, I then decided in 2010 that I would present the findings in a conference in Geneva of the European Sociological Association. And when I presented it in a session on women, Everybody came up to me afterwards and said, wow, we never thought about wife murders. There are so many articles about domestic violence, but nobody has thought about the, I don't know why, but nobody has thought about the final outcomes of these poor women, and some of whom who suffered domestic violence ended up dead. So encouraged by colleagues, I submitted a proposal to the European Union, it's called COST, and it's nothing to do with money. It's Cooperation on Science and Technology. And I want a very, very big grant for the subject called Femicide Across Europe. And it was a four-year grant, and I was in charge of 30 countries, and I had eight people, eight zero people on my committee. And every month we had meetings, different types of meetings, conferences, we had workshops. Not everybody was academic. There were loads of uh, applied practitioners like police and prison people. We held these meetings in different countries like Italy, Romania, and all sorts of countries. And each time we, we moved around Europe, we held training sessions in the police station in Rome. We trained police, we trained doctoral students. Each time we did something different, we had working groups. And I ran this cost action from 2013 to 2017. So whereas I had come into the subjects with the lens of Ethiopians in Israel, now it was becoming a European phenomenon for me. And then it became really big. I was invited to the UN three times. I was asked to speak in parliaments in Europe. And each time for each country, this was the first time they'd ever discussed femicide. They'd all discussed violence, but none of them had discussed femicide. 
Now, one of the target areas of this cost project was to publish academic journals as well as guidelines for policymakers. And so in 2016, I published the article that you mentioned called Making Femicide Visible, which frankly, I couldn't publish today because I think femicide is visible today, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And people have heard of the word and they have heard of the phenomenon, or many people have. But then I argued that we have to accept this phenomenon as a sociological legitimate subject to, to study. And you will not believe that in 2016, this was the first ever scientific article reporting on femicide in a social science journal. That means sociology, psychology, anthropology. Since then, I'm happy to say that there's huge awareness of the subject and every year it increases. People are studying femicide. I know the definition of femicide has gone through different sort of iterations. And where do you think we are now with what is femicide? What is the definition of femicide? In this cost action, uh, we set up four working groups on femicide. One was the whole of working group number one was definitions. How do we define femicide? And for four years, we discussed it because during those four years, as you point out, the definition of femicide changed. And there were lots of very emotional discussions on what it is. The second working group was on data collection, how we can have comparative data. And in most countries, there was no femicide statistics. Even in Israel, there isn't separate from homicide. Thirdly, we discussed culture. That was also people were up in arms about it. I, as an anthropologist, was maintaining that there are cultural patterns in femicide. For example, I'll give the example of the Ethiopians, whom I know the best. Sorry, it's a horrible example, but they, if a man kills a woman, it's usually his partner, he usually uses the kitchen knife and he doesn't shoot her. Whereas, I mean, there are lots of guns in Israeli society, believe me, but they don't use those guns. And so I maintain that this is a cultural pattern. Whereas if you look at America or you read the news of America, you see that they've got the guns, but they're using the guns. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Israelis don't use a gun in war, but I'm saying that on a day-to-day basis, Israelis in general, in general, are not killing their partners with guns, which is extraordinary, really. But the Ethiopians have this pattern of, of using a kitchen knife. And then they have a pattern of the perpetrator usually attempting suicide afterwards. So that's culture. And the fourth working group that we set up was prevention. And that was very applied of how we can prevent femicide through education and social means. It was very, very applied. It was very nice. So I'm going back to working group one, which was femicide and the definition. There are lots of types of femicide, including matricide, where they kill their mother, usually psychotic children, but they do. And I think that that is included in the definition of femicide. And there's lots of debates about what you consider femicide. For example, there's a a phenomenon called feticide, which means that you kill the fetus. Actually, there's a researcher in India, admittedly it was about 10 years ago, and she did this unbelievable calculation about the missing 50 million women in India. Because in India, if a woman is pregnant, and now that you can tell whether it's a boy or a girl, 
if it's a girl, the culture is that they're happier to get rid of that girl and have a boy. And so she claims that these abortions created a lacuna of 50 million women. It's, I mean, it's horrific to think about. Since Indian independence, 1947. But the, the demography in India is askew also in China, by the way, but and, and other countries too. I don't know whether you can call a fetus that hasn't been born the killing of a fetus. Femicide, I personally wouldn't go for that, but I'm saying that there is literature on that, and people do say that. To me, it's hypothetical in a sense, because the baby hasn't been born, but exemplifies for you uh, how, uh, how do we define femicide. It's a problem. Normally, we would define femicide as the killing of a woman by a man. Originally, it was by a man because she was a woman. So when the term femicide was invented, and it wasn't invented by me, but it was pushed on by me, it was invented in 1973. And then the person who invented it at a, a convention in Belgium claimed that men were misogynists and that they really hated women, and therefore it was a man who was killing a woman. Now, if we go back to the Hamas thing, that's definitely a sex thing, men targeting women. They look for women and then they rape them and murder them. But I, I have a difficulty of defining whether cases of when they found a woman dead, whether it's femicide or criminal. So what's happened in the last year in Israel, it was before the war, we'll move out this Hamas war, before the war was that there was increasing violence amongst Israeli Arabs, not Hamas, Israeli Arabs in Israel. Israeli Arabs constitute 21% of the total population in Israel. And in the last three or four years, over 50% of all femicides in Israel are among Israeli Arab women. Now, I began off telling you how I started with Ethiopian women, and they were overrepresented, and funnily enough, they've disappeared from my statistics. Now, what's happened is that in Israeli society over the last three, four years, but particularly in the last year in this new Netanyahu government, which is very right-wing, violence in the Arab sector amongst Arabs, not Arabs and Jews, it's not to do with the war, amongst different warring families has increased. And so we have situations where, I'll give you an example, a real one from this year, a very recent one. Woman is, Arab woman, is sitting in her car and the car explodes with a bomb. Now, we don't know if she was targeted because she was a woman, perhaps it was an on, what's so-called honor killing, or, this was a way of calling it quits with her husband, who is part of some underworld gag. There's no doubt that uh, violence in the Arab sector in Israel has been on the increase in the last two or three years, and particularly in the last year. But it's very difficult to define sometimes what is femicide, and sometimes it comes out years later. So the police go on and investigate, and then they find that this woman, the one in the car, 
yeah, her husband was really an, uh, some terrible criminal, but they didn't know before. And um, he has a big fight with some other Arab family. And so it comes out a year or two later. So sometimes when I do reports at the end of the year, my statistics can be changed according to the realities. Interesting. So I want to focus a little bit on why femicide has been such low priority or like, I would think like in a country like the US, for example, that the CDC or the FBI or large law enforcement agencies would keep meticulous score of women being killed for two reasons. One, that women don't have the equivalent of male violence. So with male-on-male violence, you can chalk it up to aggression versus aggression. But women don't commit violence against men. So in that sense, they are innocents. And when innocents of our society is being targeted and killed, you want to know the numbers and you want to know why. And so I'm constantly puzzled by the fact that we have gotten to 2023 around the world, and this is not a major focus. It's more horrific than that. I talk globally now, not just with what goes on in Israel, but globally. There's hardly a country, or there isn't, maybe isn't a country in the world, which has femicide as a phenomenon in the law, in their system of law. But worse than that, and when they collect data on homicides, they don't differentiate what's called disaggregate the statistics. So you don't have it in America either. You don't have it in Canada. And all these observatories that are set up, like my one and the Canadian one, they're set up as NGOs and they are funded by private individuals because, going back to our previous conversation, governments are run largely by males. They are not interested in knowing how many innocents are murdered. It's not on their agenda. One of the reasons is that femicides only constitute globally between 10% and 12% of all homicides. So that means that one in 10 of all the murders in the world are actually of women. And you are so correct that women hardly ever, there are cases, murder men. They do, but there aren't any cases. It's very, very rare. And often when a woman murders her husband, it's in self-defense because he's been assaulting her. So you're right that it hardly ever happens. Now, the feminist organizations and the people who supported this femicide across Europe and femicide across the world, they asked all their governments, please collect data on femicide. And it's quite a few years has passed now. Nobody's doing it. They're not doing it. You have data on femicide, which they call female homicide. It drives me crazy to hear female homicide. Why can't they just call it femicide? But they have that in a special unit of the European Union, but not collected by governments, not collected by countries. And it's a worldwide phenomenon. And it's worse than that still, because according to the latest data by the UNODC, which is 
uh, branch of the United Nations, Sunnyside is on the rise. In other words, we thought we're going to be so um, illuminating to the world. I'm talking of, let's say, a decade ago. And what's happened? More women are being murdered by men all over the world. So either it's because there's more reporting, which is possible, which is possible, but it's probably because there really are more women being murdered every day. In South America, in Argentina, for example, a woman is murdered every eight hours. It's crazy. In Italy, a woman is murdered every 72 hours. In Israel, it's actually very low. There's only about two cases a month or less. But in most of the world, in the United States, it's really bad. Very high. Uh, so women are being murdered all the time in all these countries. And it's not just what we imagine as patriarchal countries. Now, some countries like Iraq and Iran, we don't even have any data, so we don't know. But even in the Western countries like America, we don't have separate statistics for femicide. And there seems to be, in general, very little interest, except amongst the feminist organizations. But now, what's happened to the feminist organizations? Aren't they willing to condemn femicide? Aren't they? I can't understand it. I thought of something else. When Me Too was set up, and it was really very much in the news, and they had some tremendous achievements, Me Too didn't adopt the issue of femicide. That's right. They adopted other issues, which were very, very good. I'm not saying that they weren't good. Uh, sexual harassment, particularly, and particularly at work and, and everything. But they didn't take up the issue of femicide, which I also find interesting. It is interesting. And one wonders if there are just certain... I mean, femicide is as old as patriarchy. So one wonders if these like large oppressive patterns are just too hard to take into account, too hard to examine, too hard to look at. Yeah, I, I'm thinking it's much more fun talking about India than talking about this horrible subject, femicide. And also it's a little bit depressing, as you are pointing out, in the last year, and a bit, I would say, disappointing. I'm disappointed too in the way things are turning out. There is one other political issue that some people have raised, by the way, in this discussion, and that is that many of these NGOs and feminist organizations were associated with the left. I'm not saying that they all were left-wing, but I'm saying that they were associated with the left, the, the, the desire to have human rights, equality, and all this kind of thing. And what's happening in the world globally is that countries are being taken over by dictators and by the right, the extreme right. I'm talking in general, but you look at the Trump area and maybe Trump will return. And then you look at the end of abortion rights for women, which is beyond my, my specialization. But I'm saying that it represents the return of the right and the, the squashing of 
women's rights. And this is not just in America. It's also in these countries that in my book, like all over the world, if it's Hungary and Poland and all these countries have been taken over by dictators and by the right wing. It's the same in Israel. They're saying, oh, well, we've only got so-and-so number of women in parliament today. It's fine. We don't mind. We've only got eight out of 120. I mean, what's that? It should be 50% at least. But this is happening all over the world. So in a way, something has happened to the global politics, which has affected various feminist organizations and feminist ideologies, I think. I think that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. We're certainly not willing to link up the connection between the sinking value of women or the sinking status of women and femicide. Quite shocking, really. It's quite shocking. I wrote an article about the murder of Amini. I don't know whether you remember who Amini is. About six months ago, she was a very brave Iranian young woman who was caught by the modesty army or whatever they call themselves in Iran. And I wrote saying this is just an example of femicide. And also women's organs were targeted there. They started shooting at women's breasts and their sexual organs. And just this week, it's also come out that the Hamas did that, which is also horrible. So it looks like that the world is is regressing in terms of uh, attitudes to women. Although it's very difficult for me to come to terms with this or to admit it. Very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine having spent so much time working to push this issue and defining it, putting it on the agenda. There is a lot of awareness of this subject today. And so when I started, the internet wasn't so easy or accessible. And then I did what you call Google alerts, where you write the word femicide in, and if it pings up, then you have some article about it. So at the beginning, I'm talking of, let's say, eight years ago, I would get one every month, and now Mm -hmm. I get about 20 a day. Mm. So it's all over. Mm -hmm. And so there is much greater awareness. Whether that awareness has caused a decrease in femicide, I'm very doubtful. But there is a greater awareness. So two things are going on at the same time. Yeah. One thing you do bring up that's part of your book, uh, Femicide and War and Peace, is, of course, the rampant sexual crimes that take place during war. And that in the aftermath of war, it's rarely discussed and not counted, really, as part of war. And I think that is one thing about this Hamas attack, too, is that we're not, uh, we're discounting it all over the world. Well, the book was prompted by the Ukrainian war. I had no idea that there'd be a war like this in Israel with sexual exploitation and atrocities. And the funny thing is, it came out, this book came out in May 2023. And then Israel became part of, if I'd known that this was going to happen, it would have been the subject of the book. But I was very moved by Ukrainian women who were exploited sexually. And I wrote that in my introduction. And that's what prompted the book. And then I asked people to contribute chapters. 
And I got some really interesting chapters, not just from the United States or Canada, where you have a lot of information, but I got from all these countries in Africa and the Caucasian mountains and all these places, which have never reported femicide before. So it's a real first in that sense. And it was really interesting to see that femicide is a universal phenomenon, but in practically every case, in war, women are exploited. And they were doing these things to Ukrainian women. It's not as bad as these atrocities by Hamas, but they still were being exploited and were being sold to Russians and all sorts of awful things. And that's what prompted the book. And it is very interesting the stories, the reporting that you have from all parts of the world, spanning from Guatemala to Zimbabwe to yeah. uh, the Caucasus, are they have such commonality in terms of while they're very varied situations, they have great commonality. Yeah, you rarely get reports from those kind of countries. And so this was the unique thing about that book, because normally the reports are from Italy, from Spain, where the femicide is terrible, by the way, and United States and Canada. You get the same country, and England. England has a very high rate of femicide, according to my colleague, Karen Ingala-Smith, which is you know surprising, because these are very progressive countries. But suddenly you see that femicide is a universal phenomenon. You've got, as you said, Guatemala, Mexico, Zimbabwe, Kosovo, all these places which have nothing to do with each other, and they're all suffering from the non-recognition of women as people. They are regarded as objects or property that they can be exploited or taken and then, unfortunately, often killed. Yeah, and a peace versus war seems more like a matter of degree than it does completely different situations, that women are regarded as property to be done with what they will by men during peacetime, and that sort of gets exacerbated during war. But the condition is the same. Right. I think I wrote this line saying that the dividing line between femicide in wartime and peacetime is very thin. And also, often countries which consider themselves to be in peacetime are often conflicted internally. And uh, then you have different ethnic groups busy killing off the women of the other ethnic groups, which is also very shocking. Dr. Valerie Hudson talks about something she refers to as male coalitional violence. And that male coalitional violence, which is now organized war, but that male coalitional violence has been part of sort of humanity from very, very early days. And women don't have an equivalent, which makes me think about, I think you have a line in the book that says, uh, men and women die very different deaths. And it makes me think about that men's coalitional violence have no equivalent on the female side and that women are considered like land, like territory that you take. So we have to be careful that we don't impute a biological theory that 
all men are born, as it were, potentially violent, because that's a problem. Uh, but some feminists, more radical feminists than me, think that. So I should point that out. I don't actually support the idea that this is an innate indigenous trait of males, but I have had many arguments about this with other feminists. And I also don't really believe that men are all misogynists, but the idea that they were born with this trait and that women are the fair sex doesn't appeal to me because it's a biologically based theory. Mm. And I pref would prefer a social, socially based evolutionary theory. But in practice, we're seeing what we've talked about, that all over the world, globally, this is what's happening and that males are preventing women from living the same lives as them. So in practice, this theory might be correct, but I don't endorse it as a theory. And I hear that and agree to a certain extent, but I do think that male coalitional violence has utility because the violence against women accomplish something for men, both as a class and as individuals. Yeah. I'm still hooked up on the, I think, brilliant term that you taught me, coercive control. And I, I'm hooked on it now. I didn't know it a year ago when you approached me, whenever it was. And I looked it up and I'm convinced that there's something in that, which is a more psychological theory of male coercive control over women. And that strikes me as more useful to understand what's going on. So what I'm thinking is that the idea of coercive control is also, it could be universal. Again, men aren't necessarily born to be controlling of females, but this certainly appears in every society, and sometimes, just sometimes, females join them. So I'll give you an example, which is also very interesting and difficult to understand as well. You have in what you call MENA countries, which is Middle Eastern countries, and you have it in America and Europe uh, amongst certain populations. You have what you call honor killings. That means as a woman is killed because she was abusing the honor of their family. Now, usually that woman is, they claim that she was having an affair with somebody or she was dressed, what they call immodestly, or her skirt was too high or she put too much lipstick on. Often it's not based in truth at all, but it could be, but it isn't. And these women are controlled by men. In other words, if they go out of the house, they are accused of being immodest. And therefore, at a certain point, even their fathers or their brothers would have to preserve the family honor and kill them. Now, what's really difficult to understand, and this is what I'm raising in this talk, is that just sometimes the mother-in-law takes aside and she sides with the father-in-law and with the males and she's part of this secret and finally 
the woman is killed, and it might be a family coalition. She's controlled by her mother-in-law often. They often she often lives with the parents-in-law because it's a patriarchal society and it's what you call patrilocal, where they live with the, the parents-in-law. She can't be in touch with her natal family, her original family. And that's the beginning of this coercive control. And then it gets worse. Then she shouldn't say this and that and the other. And she can't have any money for a new dress. And she should make the food cheaper and they will take the money. And then everything is regulated until finally it ends up really badly. The whole thing is that the control, they've lost control. And so they have to retain control by killing this woman, this poor woman, in what's called in the literature honor killings, which truly is dishonorable. Hearing you talk, it makes me think, do you think this rise in, in femicide is a backlash overall, like a global backlash against women's liberation? I think femicide was always here. Was I mean, it's been here for generations. You've got it in all the literature as well. Even Greek and Roman literature, femicide, and even Shakespeare and everything. It's a very fascinating subject. So I think it's been here all the years, and you even have it in the Bible. Femicide has been with us forever. But the interesting thing that you've mentioned, and which I've also referred to, is whether it's on the increase in this so-called enlightened world, but it's becoming less enlightened. And that's what's so shocking. That's what's really shocking. Is it increasing globally? Now, I want to make a little bit of a criticism because the UNODC claims that there are 89,000 femicides a year, but it seems to me that that's based on very, very old statistics. And also it includes countries which don't really give reliable statistics like Iran. I'm sure it's at least double that. I'm sure of it. Shocking. But I can't, I didn't do a worldwide study and suddenly that would require lots of funding and I didn't do it and I'm not the one. And it's not being done. Countries are not counting. No, but you know that my Israel Observatory on Femicide is not funded. It's not funded by the government. It's funded by one small philanthropist who pays for a student. And yet, we do so much. And I think it's similar in many countries. It's not just in Israel. It's, it's outrageous, basically. As you said, these... You'd think that the police in all the countries or the governments would want to know how many women are being murdered, but they have very little interest. It's a very side issue globally. I think that's the most interesting thing of all. <laughs> 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 that it's that is pushed aside. And what, what do they say? What doesn't get counted doesn't count. In your Rwanda story, in your book, one of the women there, I forget her name, says, if you kill a woman, you kill the family. And they know that. Thank you for mentioning that. I'll just add a little bit at the very end here. So the significance of femicide is not just that the woman is killed, as you point out. First of all, it's often perpetrated in front of children, which is horrific. So these children are traumatized forever. But the number of orphans that are created is just mind-boggling. 
even if they weren't present at the actual murder. And then, of course, everybody around this woman, the, the brothers, the sisters, the parents, it's a terrible thing. And she's right. You don't just kill a woman. You kill her whole family. And it's for several generations. I don't think people get over it. It has ripple effects we can't even contemplate. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. It's such a fascinating conversation, and thanks for sharing all your expertise. It was my pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. After reading so much of Shalva's reporting and listening to this interview, one thought sticks with me, and that is that femicide is a fact of life in peace as much as it is during war, and that we should all question what peace actually means for women of the world. To illustrate this point, I want to tell a small story from my own life. My father, who was a Norwegian, he's passed now, was born in 1939 at the start of Germany's brutal occupation of Norway. And as a young man, he became a UN peacekeeping soldier and was stationed in Gaza in the late 1950s. I don't know much about his time there other than the stories of how he and his fellow soldiers would use their service weapons to shoot sharks in the Gaza Sea to watch the ensuing bloodbath for funsies. I also know that my dad brought his service weapon home and kept it in a drawer. At the time, and still, it is a very unusual thing for a Scandinavian home to have a gun present. And the presence of this gun was a matter of terror to my mother, both during her marriage and after she divorced my dad. Just food for thought. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>